Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank, and today we're going to speak with Jonathan Cohn, the author of The Ten Year War, Obamacare, and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. This is his second book. He's a longtime reporter and writer and has focused on America's healthcare system for much of his career. He's now with the Huffington Post. Thanks so much for being here, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be here on the podcast. Before we start our interview, I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. To tell the story of Obamacare is to tell the story of the United States over the last 10 to 12 years. It's the story of how government tried to make the most intimate thing we all need, healthcare, available to everyone. It's also the story of how power and politics works in all three branches of government. It's the story of grassroots groups up against one another. It's the story of how elections have consequences. It's the story of how political parties ebb and flow. It's the story of compromise, both with opponents and of one's own ideals. And it's arguably one of two pieces of legislation that Donald Trump failed to erase from Barack Obama's legacy, the other being the bailouts of 2009. So, Jonathan, when and why did you decide to try to put this story, so many stories, into one book? Um, so the, 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 the truthful story is that the idea, you know, as you said, I've been, I, I've been covering healthcare for a long time, and I, I'd written about the problems of our healthcare system leading up to the election of Barack Obama and the debate over the Affordable Care Act. And I remember when they, I actually have a very distinct memory of the night that the bill passes in the House of Representatives. So it's, it's, it's very late night. It's this very dramatic weekend culminating this big vote. And, and um, I remember thinking about it afterwards that maybe I should, you know, maybe it's time to sort of step back and tell the story of how this thing got passed. And, and I did actually write a, you know, I, I used to get the New Republic and I did a kind of long kind of extended outtake on, you know, how they did it and sort of told a lot of the stories. And I thought about turning that into a book. It quickly became apparent that the story was not over. <laughs> um, and, um, and, and I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't predict that. Uh, I, I thought the story, I mean, I, I knew there would be debates and we would, I mean, everybody, every country in the world constantly debating healthcare. So I never thought this was going to like go away as an issue, but I really didn't think this sort of existential debate over whether this law should exist would keep going. Um, and, um, you know, uh, and, and I think most, uh, a lot of people in the Democratic Party, certainly you ask President Obama, he'll tell you, he didn't think, you know, this thing would linger on as a fight, but it did. And it became apparent that number one, it was going to continue to be a political controversy. Number two, you really like, it wasn't clear what you had, like, what is this thing going to really do? You had to wait a few years to see it play out in the states you know what what is it going to mean on the ground for actual people and uh so i kind of waited i waited and there were some other books, some really great books which i cite in mine who kind of you know wrote about it it was really when john mccain does his sort of thumbs down which i think you know most people remember this very dramatic moment in the senate and 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 then following that the republicans you know that's basically the end of repeal they do take one more attempt it fails and then in the midterms of 2018 they lose their House majority. And at that point, it became pretty clear that at least politically, we were in a place where I think things weren't gonna change anymore. It was pretty clear the country had sort of rendered a verdict. You know, they didn't, you know, not that the Affordable Care Act was perfect or they liked everything about it, but they didn't wanna go back. We now can, and you can assess now, you can look at the states and say, well, this is what it looks like for people here in California, and this is what it looks like in Iowa, and you know, wherever. And so that's when I really decided, you know, it's time to, Maybe now is the time to kind of take stock and say, what do we have here? What does it all mean? And, and, and what lessons can we learn both for, you know, healthcare, but also like American democracy? Like, you know, this is a case study in how our government works or does it work? And, you know, what do we need to learn from it? And we are going to talk about how Obamacare went from being a weight around the president's party to a boon to the Democratic Party. So we'll, we'll get to that. It was almost like an overnight, like, thing where all of a sudden the polls all flipped and everyone said, wait a minute, you can't take that from us. But uh, go- going back, how big of a lift is healthcare for um, 
all of us in America as seen in the context of other massive political lifts. And so I'm thinking of one healthcare bill, which would be, which would be Medicare, but also Social Security. And we can talk about tax cuts, put that in the same group, putting a new justice on the bench. Where does reforming America's healthcare, um, you know, when I was growing up, Social Security was like the third rail of American politics. You couldn't touch it. Where does healthcare rank in terms of reform in our political system as something that is um, untouchable for um, for everybody, for the political system? Yeah. So I, I think at this point, I, I put it in that pantheon with Social Security and with Medicare. We're awfully close. I don't think it's quite as politically safe. Um, but... I do think we have gotten to the point where, I mean, this sort of telltale sign is if you watch, listen to how Republicans talk about the healthcare law and how they talked about it in 2020 and 2018. And that, 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 that's really the proof here, which is they went from constantly agitating, saying this is the worst thing ever, we're going to repeal this thing, to basically saying, trying to run away from it, trying not to talk about it if they can avoid the subject. And if they have to talk about it, the first thing out of their mouth is, hey, we want to protect people with pre-existing conditions too. We're all for that. We don't want to take insurance away from anybody. And, you know, that is actually the way they talk about Medicare, right? I mean, there are plenty of conservatives, plenty of Republicans who don't like Medicare because it's, 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 you know, it's a big government program. It's the government stepping in for the private sector. It's redistributive. And yet you don't hear any of them attacking Medicare. They have plans that would undermine Medicare and they try to pass them, but they're always presented as protecting Medicare. And I think we've seen that kind of transition now with the Affordable Care Act, where they're going to continue to attack it, try to undermine it, try to turn it into something that's more of a conservative program, but they're not leading out with a campaign, hey, we're going to get rid of Obamacare because it's a loser for it. When did the fight for healthcare for all in America start. There are some books that say it started with Teddy Roosevelt and that he proposed something, but um, you argue that it's more so Harry Truman. Explain why. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, there are stirrings, there are like, you know, early kind of versions of the fight about healthcare in the progressive era involving Theodore Roosevelt. Um, it's on, uh, there is something in the platform when he runs in uh, 1912 for president. The real early action is you had a couple states that kind of tried to move in that direction. Um, I'm pretty sure California was one of them. California is always one of them. Um, uh, and, uh, right. and, and it was called a compulsory insurance back then. And um, it, you know, those early state efforts didn't get very far um, in part because the big opposition was from the medical profession. State medical societies were very powerful and, and they saw it as an intrusion on their autonomy and intrusion on their incomes. So what did Truman, what did Truman want to do? So, so you kind of go ahead in history and that's really important because so it's actually Roosevelt, right? Who's like, you know, he's doing the new deal and he's doing the social security bill and there's talk like, why don't we do medical insurance? And, and it's important because there's a reason it comes up now, which is because this is the first time in history medicine's good enough to be, you can charge a lot for it. Right. Cause before, I mean, you know, it wasn't really anything. Yeah. Was, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I mean, you go back to like the 19th century and there's like, you know, there's a lot of concern about like, the cost of, of medical, uh, uh, of illness, but it's all because like, you're gonna get sick, you're not gonna be able to work, you won't have a wage, so what do we do about that? So it's really not until the early 20th century when like medicine gets good, you know, tech, you know things like they learn how to use the anesthesia and not give people an infection, they can start really doing surgery. And so now like for the first time, people actually can't pay their medical bills. And you have a whole in, you know, industry popping up, like a hospital industry that like, it's got a bunch of wards full of patients who, who, who can't pay them any money, so they're going to go bankrupt. So there's this need to do something. Roosevelt thinks about it, and, and the reason they don't, uh, historians tell us, is that they remembered what happened with those state efforts. They're very worried about the medical profession, you know, kind of coming against them. So Truman, but they don't give up on it entirely. They talk about it, and Roosevelt, uh, uh, a year or two before he dies, actually kind of renews a call for it. And um, Truman comes in, and Truman decides this is going to be his big thing, you know, I'm going to do national health insurance. Um, and he proposes it, you know, he urges Congress to pass a bill, and it runs smack into the AMA, the American Medical Association, which says this is socialism, it's gonna, you know, it's gonna ruin America. 
Uh, there's other opponents of it. There's more, cons you know, Republicans, you know, at this point, like they're kind of at peace with the New Deal welfare state, but they don't want to add to it. You have Southern Democrats who already kind of, for a variety of reasons, a lot of them tied to race and who, you know, what's going to mean for integration are already kind of wary of this and they just can't get it through Congress. You tell a great story in the book about where health insurance actually came from. And I, maybe I'd read it before, but I, I didn't remember reading it. I don't remember reading it. So tell us about Baylor and their 50 cent plan for coverage. And this is the first health insurance plan. Tell us what year and how Baylor came up with this. Yeah, yeah. So you got to go back and go back into the, step into the Wayback Machine and go to 1929. Um, and, and to set the scene for you, um, we're at this period we were just describing, right? Where, 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 where medicine is now, you can do things with medicine. It's advanced. Hospitals have been expanding because, you know, now they're doing surgeries and, 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 and they've built out these new units and, 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 and physicians are getting paid more. Nurses are getting, you know, the whole, the, we have an, uh, the beginnings of a healthcare economy, right? And now the Great Depression hits. And so this problem with no one being able to pay their bills has gotten really acute. And so hospitals are in real financial trouble. Uh, you know, because they, they, no one can pay their bills. And if, the, and if the patients can't pay the hospitals, hospitals can't pay for rent. They can't pay for equipment. They can't pay salaries. So in Dallas, uh, Baylor Hospital hires a new administrator. And uh, he used to be, his, immediately, his job immediately before coming to Baylor Hospital is he's superintendent of the Dallas, Texas school system. And he's trying to think of a way to kind of help the finances of the hospital. And he says, well, what if we, you know, what if we had like a, what if we went to like a large group of people, like the teachers who used to work in this, who I used to be in charge of when I was at the school district. And we said, we offer them like a deal. I say, look, if each one of you pays like 50 cents a month, you know, we will then say you get up to, you know, two weeks. I actually trying to remember the exact details now. I have to look it up in my book. My memory's slipping, <laughs> but uh, you know, I think it was like two weeks of care. Yeah, I, I believe and, it was a month. Yeah, fifty cents. Month. You get you get care. Right. Yeah, yeah. Now it's fifty cents a minute. But go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And so, and and you know, and the key thing is is very important because this is the way the, the, the sort of actuarial math of insurance is. You have to get enough teachers to sign up for it, or, or the math won't work. Like if only like five teachers sign up, those five teachers and one of them gets an injury, like there's not gonna be enough money there. So they calculated it would have to be, you know, about two thirds of the teachers, they get it, uh, people sign up, and on, it's actually on Christmas day, there's a woman, she slips on some ice in Dallas and she breaks her ankle. And she gets to the hospital and they set it and she doesn't have to pay the bill because she's on the teacher plan. And, and you know, at least according to the histories of Blue Cross and Blue Shield that are, as far as I know, the authoritative histories of this, um, she is the first, uh, you know, said to be the first person ever taken care of in what we would now consider modern health insurance in this country. The first success story. And then there yes. would be, of course, some many success stories and many not so successful stories. Um, let's fast forward a little bit here um, to a lot of it to the 90s. And I, this is one of the first political stories that I remember watching, not quite in full, but just about in full. Um, the, the lessons of the Clinton health care plan and the failure. Um, and as the Obama administration in 08 and 09 take office, these lessons are very much part of their calculations as to, as to you know, as far as when they're going to um, take on this idea of health insurance and health care reform. Talk about the lessons that they had in their minds as they embark on this plan to create what eventually became known as Obamacare. Yeah, well, it's funny you mentioned it being your first memory because it actually political I, memory, not well, yeah, 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 no, yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. <laughs> so, I, I'm probably a little older than you are, I'm guessing. So it was not my first political memory, but it is like the first big political fight of me, like as a journalist. I was right out of college when this all started. So it, and in some ways, uh, the, 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 my book begins there, and actually, the book in that sense really spans my professional life. Um, and, and again, just to set the scene for people, because it's been a while, I think most people, a lot of people either, they, they, if they were alive, they don't remember it, they weren't alive then. Um, you know, Bill Clinton getting elected was like this watershed moment. Like Democrats had been just, you know, they'd been locked out of the White House, except for Jimmy Carter, which was like a fluky election because of Watergate. You know, Reagan had, was, had come to define the era in Reaganism, right? There was like, you know, 
Democrats couldn't win a national presidential election. In general, the sort of the, 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 the currents in American politics were like anti-government, anti-government spending, pro-business, pro-private market. Um, you, I mean, healthcare was like nowhere on the agenda at all. And then it sort of pops up in 1991, in part because there's a recession, a really bad, deep recession that reaches into the middle class. And a lot of middle class people with health insurance start losing it. So there's all of a sudden it's back in, it's back in the mix. And Bill Clinton... Again, if you don't know your tech, you got to remember, he was like 43 years old, 44 years old. He's like this third youngest president ever. He's got this energy. He comes in, I'm going to do universal health care. And like, he's got all this momentum and he gives this big speech in front of Congress, right? And it was a classic Bill Clinton speech, you know, full of like policy, but he like spins it with, you know, really good sort of real life exam. People are all into it. And then the thing just in, in it proceeds to collapse. It is, and it, not only do they fail to pass the healthcare bill, nothing passes, but it's a political catastrophe. And Democrats lose both the House and the Senate in the, two, in the 1994 midterms. And healthcare is thought to be a big part of that. And it leaves this deep psychological scar on the party. And in fact, most party leaders, like you can't say the words universal healthcare to them. Like don't, they don't want to touch it. They're like, please, we don't want to go anywhere near that. We learned our lesson. This is a bad issue for us. Now, there was exceptions, and, and there were people like Ted Kennedy, senator from Massachusetts, John Dingell, congressman from Michigan, Henry Waxman, congressman from California, people who had spent their whole careers on healthcare, And then a whole sort of assorted universe of people, of advocates and experts around them who were smart enough to realize we're going to come back to this because America's healthcare system is deeply broken and it's going to break even more. And they basically spend from 1994 up through like 2007, like we're gonna figure out what we did wrong. Like we are gonna like not make the same mistakes again. Whatever we do, we're gonna, we're, you know, we're, we're gonna learn. And they did and they, you know, and it was like, it was everything. It was, you know, it was like they would have conferences, they'd write papers, they'd have these like quiet meetings of like bring people together, how can we do this right? And then I came up with like a sort of set of basic rules. and. You know, on policy, I think the biggest one was try not to disrupt. Just try, don't try to reinvent the whole system. Just plug the holes. So, I mean, this was a big lesson from the Clinton fight was, you know, the Clinton plan would have told, you know, most people with insurance from an employer would have had to change. And like, that is, they, they decide, cannot do that. People who have employer policies, even if they're afraid of losing them, even if they're frustrated with the insurance company, they don't want to give them up. So don't, don't take it away from them. Just Find the people who, you know, people who are, you know, don't have insurance because they don't have enough money or because they have a pre-existing condition and they're buying on their own and they're in this crazy market, you know, where you can't find good policies because they don't have an employer for them. Just deal with those people and, 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 and try, like, if you can, like, don't, you know, do whatever you can to avoid spending too much money or too much government regular because government's bad. We're still in that Reagan mentality. And, and then, you know, there was, you know, from a strategic standpoint, the big lesson was, you cannot beat the healthcare industry. You know, Franklin Roosevelt couldn't do it. Harry Truman couldn't do it. Bill Clinton couldn't do it. So the next time we do this, we are not going to try to just get into a, a knockdown drag out fight with the drug makers and the hospitals. We are going to sit down with them and we're going to negotiate with all of them and come up with something that we can all move forward. Let's talk about Barack Obama a little bit. Um, he has, of course, you know, uh, numbers, you know, he has decades left to live. I'm not suggesting that, but um, we can begin to take stock of his life and begin to take stock of his early roots and why there are uh, a number of things that happened in his childhood that dictated the way he ran the White House and why he became president in the first place. Um, and one of those things is his mother. And um, we've had a, a biographer on the show who argues um, that, um, his mother, Stan Leanne, was critically important to not only his development as a politician, but also his development as a family man and his development, you know, his desire to stay um, close to his family and to raise his family in kind of a strong nuclear um, situation. Um, uh, one of the things that she, um, that he saw was her go through a number of very difficult, and one in particular, very difficult health situations. So just talk a little bit about and explain Stanley Ann and what Barack Obama saw in her that led him to think health health care is a really important thing for the American people to have. Yeah. So, um, you know, she was this very 
energetic, accomplished, fiercely independent woman. Um, you know, his life kind of, you know, when he, you know, from going all, you know, all over the world, I mean, that was with her. Um, uh, she was also, you know, very much, you know, I, I, I am not the world's leading expert on his biography, but certainly, and I, I know I read, I think I know which biography you're talking about. I read that one. It's excellent. And, you know, she's the one, you know, gives him this, this drive to learn and, and, you know, and, 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 and to, and to, and to, to read and, and to see the world as, you know, complex. Um, towards the end of her life, when, when he's relatively young, she's relatively young, she gets cancer. Um, and she's, you know, and has, she, you know, she fights cancer and eventually she dies from the cancer. While that is going on, she is worried about her medical bills. And it's a story he would tell often about that, that she was, quote, fighting with an insurance company about medical bills. Now, he would use that story a lot. And then it later came out that it actually wasn't the health insurance carrier that was like not wanting to pay. It was a disability policy that was like supposed to be supplementing it. As that was supposed to be some kind of gotcha, I think, you know, oh, he was, you know, hey, number one, I don't, you know, I'm, whether he remembered it was a disability policy or a health insurance policy, who knows. The broader lesson here was his mother is, is dealing with the most profound thing, most awful thing you can deal with, which is your mortality. And he's dealing with it and the people around her are dealing with it. And that rightly ought to be their only focus. But instead, they have to spend time and energy thinking about medical bills. And I think that is, you know, I always say, I mean, people say, you know, I, you know why do you believe in universal coverage? Why do you think healthcare should be a right? And, 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 and I always say, uh, big reasons, I think, if, you know, as a society, we can't stop people from getting sick. We can't stop people from getting injured. And we can't always cure people, right? We can't, whatever. What a society can do is say, look, this is going to be hard we can at least spare you the problem of having to figure out how you're going to pay for it. That, you know, we can take that off the table. And that's what every other enlightened society in the world does. We're the only one that traditionally hasn't. And even today for a lot of people still doesn't. There's this incredible quote that you have in the book um, where one of the members of the Obama administration, I don't remember who said, Oh, we just said that healthcare thing at the beginning, just to make news. <laughs> when we're starting to do our administration here and put things together, um, he just kind of said it one day and it, was, it became a headline and Obama's going to take on healthcare. Um, so I'm using that quote to set up the question, where was healthcare when Barack Obama took office in 2009? Um, you wrote, if American healthcare hadn't been in such desperately bad shape, if so many people hadn't been suffering and in need of help, reform would not have had the support it needed to make it through the political process. So where was American healthcare in 09? Yeah. So, you know, uh, you know, 2009, and that quote's from 2007, I mean, it's about an episode in 2007, in January of 2007. He's just, you know, Obama has just announced the formation of his committee that he's going to run for president. He's speaking at a conference in Washington, D.C. by a group called Families USA, which is kind of like the big advocacy group for expanding healthcare. And he makes this pledge and says, the next president of the United States, the first term, will sign a universal, you know, I, I believe should be the goal of the next president by the end of the first term to sign universal coverage. And as it turns out, that pledge, like, that was not super, you know, he, there was barely a campaign going on. Like, so I remember asking, so did you guys, like, you must have really thought that through and litigated this whole, you know, whatever. They're like, not really. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the honest truth is, I mean, he had a long history on this issue, right? I mean, Obama, going back to the Illinois State Senate, I mean, he, there was no question that he was committed to universal health care his whole MO was we should do bold things. So, I mean, it fit that he should do it. It wasn't like it came out of nowhere. But at the same time, that is kind of a marker to put down. And, you know, if you know how politics work, usually when you put down a marker, like there is a lot of advanced deliberation. This one didn't have that. I mean, they were just like, he kind of needs to say something. And they felt like, well, first term is vague enough. It's not, you know, if he has to wiggle out of it, he can. Um, so, you know, where healthcare was at that point, we've kind of come full circle from the Clinton plan before, which we were talking about a few minutes ago. And sure enough, you know, people, the, the problems of the healthcare system didn't go away magically. They actually got worse. And what, in addition to that, the whole Democratic Party universe has been moving, working towards sort of pushing for this moment. And they have worked out amongst themselves a kind of common vision for how they're like, okay, we think we have a way to do this, a strategy 
and a plan that can actually survive the political process and get through. And by the time Obama in 2007 is running for president, that consensus has like gelled. Like it's already there. Um, and it, it, it comes into play as he's, he starts to sort of think about, well, I'm going to run for president. You know, what am I going to talk about? And healthcare is now become, it's, it's, it's back to being a front burner issue. Uh, in part, there are groups like the Service Employees International Union, which is a u- labor union. Traditionally, very labor was an important champion of healthcare. You go back to like the fights in Truman, you know, they were always pro-reform. Interestingly, they'd kind of, some of that enthusiasm had waned over the years because in general, the big industrial unions had pretty good benefits for their workers. So it was less urgent. But this new union, SEIU, they represent janitors and security workers. People don't have good health. So it's really important. And they like, basically said to every Democratic candidate, if you want our endorsement, you have to have a universal health care plan, or we're not even talking to you. And SAE was hugely important. So you had this push from interest, Democratic interest groups. It was a big issue. You had this consensus gelling. And then you had, you know, you had a presidential campaign um, with three candidates, you know, leading the pack, which is, people don't, I may mean, not remember this name, but John Edwards, who was a senator from North Carolina. Um, I know they remember the other one, which was Hillary Clinton and, 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 and Barack Obama. And actually it was Edwards was the first one out of the gate. He, 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 he's like, I'm going to, you want it to be the progressive candidate. So he puts out a healthcare plan and there was a big sense in the Obama campaign. They had to match that. Like it was like a bid, like you couldn't underbid what Edwards had done or you wouldn't be taken seriously. And of course, Hillary Clinton was going to do that. But you know, she was like Hillary Clinton, like everyone knows Hillary Clinton's going to do universal coverage because she's Hillary Clinton. Um, and, and pretty quickly at that point, you know, you're into the 2008 presidential cycle, you know, it's number one issue in the democratic party, you know, and it's like, this is going to be at the top of the agenda. I don't remember if this was before the bill passed or afterwards, but I remember the first time I heard the word Obamacare and it was a Republican operative in Rochester, um, who I was a reporter in Rochester at a TV station there. And they asked me if I would be covering a rally to oppose Obamacare. This whole, I remember he said this whole Obamacare thing. And it took me a second to, to figure out, oh, he's talking about the healthcare reform thing. Um, obviously, this was, this was used as a pejorative at first. Um, how did the war against Obamacare start? Um, was it against healthcare reform or was it against him? Yeah, <laughs> Well, I always, my, 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 my one-liner on this is always that the opposition to Obamacare had as much to do with the Obama part as the care part. As the care, right. <laughs> right. Um, I don't think there's any question at all, especially if you sort of trace the origins of it. In 2009, when Democrats are in Congress, they're trying to pass this bill, and it, 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 you know, the tea, it, it becomes the sort of rallying cry for what became the Tea Party movement. Tea Party movement didn't start on healthcare, right? I mean, it starts, I mean, it's a weird, the whole backstory on the Tea Party is its own twisted, complex tale of, you know, various forces coming together. But really, you know, initially it was more about the sort of uh, financial bailouts and what was happening for homeowners. And it quickly kind of changed its center of gravity and became about the healthcare plan. And I, I don't think there's any question that a lot of the opposition, the intensity of it, had to do with a more generalized opposition to Obama and the Democrats. And I don't think you have to scratch the surface very hard. I think you don't have to scratch the surface at all. It's on the surface. That a lot of that was about Obama and, you know, what he looks like. I mean, having a black president triggered a lot of people. I want to be very careful when I say that. I always try to be careful, which is that there are people who oppose the Affordable Care Act because they philosophically think it is the wrong thing. And that's it. I mean, they, they, they think it's bad policy, which is a very reasonable opinion to have about it, like it would be about any policy. You know, or they, they have other, you know, all kinds of different arguments they might have. But there is even so, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say you know. If you tell me I, someone was a diehard opponent of Obamacare, I wouldn't say, well, that's because you're racist. You know, you might be completely on principle. I, I know people like that, and I would never say that. I, on the other hand, I think it's undeniable that a, a huge chunk of the opposition and the passion behind it was rooted in either a conscious or unconscious reaction to Obama's race and that kind of triggering effect that we've seen play out all through the Trump era of. From, from white voters who think this country is changing, it's becoming a minority-majority country, as they call it. And, 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 and Obamacare became the kind of leading edge of that. 
what does the president decide about individual mandate versus public option? And when and how does then Romney care enter the stage? Um, people at, you know, as this law is being, you know, getting hearings and going through Congress, people are telling him to stand down. This isn't going to make it. This is going to kill you politically. He refuses to stand down. Um, and eventually he says, you know what? I do care. Obamacare, of course I, I care. And he tries to turn the pejorative into something positive for him. But how does this decision come down to, to drop a public option and then say, we can do Romney care. We can do an individual mandate and require you to have health insurance. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of the, the uh, there's a lot of ironies in the way that all evolved. So Romney care. So Massachusetts had done this health care plan in 2006 Mitt Romney, Republican governor, is, a, is an architect of it. He signs it, he promotes it. And actually, that was like incredibly important to the Delegate. That was a big reason why Democrats, when we talked about a consensus, the consensus was to basically make that the model. And the fact that it had a Republican governor behind it, and there were conservatives praising it, was like hugely important. Like it was like a bat signal. Like you, this is your way through the political gauntlet you've never gone through before because you got Republicans behind it. And the, and the Romney plan had an individual mandate. Right. I mean, that was part of it. In fact, for Romney, and this is so weird how this all changed over time. But when Romney like endorsed the plan in Massachusetts, like he loved the mandate and he thought the mandate was like really important. And he saw that as like a conservative value. His whole take on it was there are people who are getting sick and they there are people who are, who are healthy, who could afford to buy insurance. They don't. Then they get you know, hit by a car, they get a diagnosis of cancer, whatever. They go to the hospital and then they end up imposing their costs on everyone else. That's wrong. I want to make everyone take individual responsibility, so I'm going to make you pay for your insurance up front. So that was his whole conception of this. And it was like- I'm going to make you take individual responsibility. That's a, yeah. good, that's a good phrase, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he, I mean, he gave speeches like, this is, this is like, and he would say, I am a proud conservative. And, and Mitt Romney is like a genuinely conservative, like that's him, like he is a genuine- philosophical conservative like that if you know anything about Romney like that totally makes sense that he would see it that way and basically Democrats are like you know economists you know and Democrats love economists because you know to a fault maybe like you know they're the opposite like you know Republicans have become so disdainful of expertise Democrats love expertise and you know I would even argue sometimes maybe they trust their experts a little too much or at least give them too much deference but all the economists who like study this are like you know what if you're not gonna have the government just insure everyone directly and you're gonna like do a system where you're gonna tell insurers they have to cover everybody, you have to have a mandate. Otherwise the system doesn't work. And what's funny is that in the 2008 campaign, John Edwards has a mandate in his campaign. Hillary Clinton has a, a mandate in her campaign plan. Obama doesn't, he resists. He's got his economists are giving the same advice they're giving everyone else. And he's like, you know, I don't know. I'm not totally comfortable with this idea that we're gonna make people pay a penalty if they don't get insurance. He's like, it like, seems to me if it's affordable, they'll buy it. And if it's not, why are we penalizing them? And the economist's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way. And it makes a lot of sense to have it. It's like, no, no. He's like, I, I don't want to do it. Um, and also, I think my, 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 my pollsters are telling me it's kind of a loser with the general public. So that's another reason not to do it. And he's like, let's not do it. Let's, we'll have a mandate for kids. We should require the kids get covered. They're cheap anyway. And we'll come up with some other way of getting people into the system. And so that's what his plan is when he gets in. But then he gets, you know, gets to 2009 and Congress is running the bills. And both the House and Senate bills, Democrats, they're, they're with everyone else. They're like, yeah, we need a mandate. We have to have it because the economists are telling us we need it. We are, you know, we want people to say this bill is going to cover as many people as possible. So we want the mandate. And, and, and Obama, partly because it's what Congress wants and partly because the economists are keep working on him and saying, hey, you know, we need this. And in fact, going back to the end of the campaign, he actually pulls aside right after, uh, right after the primaries are over and he's the nominee. Um, one of the people he hires to come work for him, here's a name from the news recently, is Neera Tandon. Uh, and Neera- She's in the book a couple of times, yeah. She is. Neera, Neera uh, did all, you know, she is among, there's a lot of people in this book who's not so much her anymore, but are relatively anonymous to the general public, but who played a critical role in this thing becoming law. She's one of them. And- you know, Nira had worked for Hillary. She was like Hillary's policy advisor, you know, top, you know, whatever. And Obama says to her, like, you know, she, you know, I kind of feel like Hillary kind of had the better of that argument because they'd been going back and forth in the primaries about this, about the mandate. And Hillary was like, you don't have a mandate. Your plan's not as good. And Obama's like, I don't have a mandate. My plan's better. 
And he kind of confides to Nero that like, yeah, you know, you guys made pretty good arguments about that. Maybe we'll come around. So he ends up endorsing the mandate somewhat reluctantly, but not, not even reluctantly, but sort of in a kind of, yeah, we'll do this. And then there's the public option. I mean, that's a whole other like, yeah, you know, that, yeah, yeah. That's but, 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 but ultimately, you know, the, the public option goes away. Um, the, the president basically relaxes his push for that. Um, and then the bill does pass. There's this incredible sequence where Ted Kennedy dies. He's replaced by a Republican. They think they've lost the 60th vote. They wind up finding 60 votes. And I remember I was sitting on like an airplane or something and watching on the TV on my seat on the seat in front of me when Obamacare passed. And I remember thinking, wow, like they actually did it. This is the biggest law that I've probably ever witnessed passing. I mean, you, you know, maybe you could look at a medic, you know, the Medicaid drug expansion or something like that, or um, gosh, you know, there really aren't many others that, that are on par with the size and scale of Obamacare, since I can certainly remember. Um, the Iraq war vote, that was a big deal in Congress. But beyond that, there really wasn't, uh, there, there really hasn't been much else in my lifetime. Um, so the bill passes, and then there are a number of court challenges to it. One of them makes it to the Supreme Court. And there's this incredible moment where people are gathered in front of the Supreme Court and people start screaming, they, they took it away. They, took, they, 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 they finished Obamacare. They took the mandate away. It's done. And then all the networks have to go, wait a minute. <laughs> there was a but to what John Roberts said in, as he read the opinion. So talk about the Roberts opinion. And um, he essentially says, as you say in the book, get rid of Obamacare if you like in Congress. Go ahead. But don't ask me to do the work for you. So talk about this moment yeah, that we all yeah. witnessed. Yeah. So the, 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 there were two cases. This is the first one. And, you know, this was the most serious of the constitutional challenges. As you mentioned, there's one in front of the Supreme Court right now. It's, 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 it's a super weak case. And everyone's hoping the Supreme Court sees it that way and throws it out. Um, but uh, the first case was much stronger. I mean, it was a real constitutional question there. And, you know, oral arguments it did not look good for the law. Um, you know, it was basically, it was about the mandate, the individual mandate. Did Congress have the power to do this? And the kind of, there were two arguments that the government had made. One was that, look, the federal government, ever since the New Deal, has, you know, you had this power to regulate commerce. You know, and this is, you know, this is very, you know, all the stuff that we associate with the New Deal and afterwards, like, huge, wide, far-reaching power. Courts have rarely restricted it. Clearly, we have a dysfunctional insurance market. It's clearly... We're just saying people have to pay for their insurance before they get their medical care. And, and, and clearly that's a power that Congress has. And then the second argument was, by the way, it's not like you get thrown in jail if you don't have insurance. You just have to pay a fine. And the fine is on your taxes. So it's a tax. And it says right in the Constitution. Congress can tax. Yeah. Now, I will say, like, all the kind of attention and spotlight in the lead up to the case was on the commerce side. Because that was more, more intellectually interesting, frankly. And... Uh, the tax thing didn't get a lot of attention, although it was always there. They made the argument that justices sounded super skeptical and like they were ready to throw out the law. And in fact, based on reporting from a couple of journalists who looked at it afterwards, the way the Supreme Court works is the justices on the Friday after all arguments, they meet in what's called a conference. And it's justices only, no clerks. And the, at that time, there were five conservative justices. Roberts is the chief. And the other four are Thomas, Scalia... Uh, Alito and Kennedy. And uh, those, some combination of those four walk out of that conference thinking they've won, thinking this, the law is going to get thrown out. It was just a kind of question of whether they're going to throw the entire Affordable Care Act out or just part of it. It's not clear exactly what happened, but Roberts at some point decides that is not what he wants to do. And we can argue, he, the only person we'll ever know if he ever changed his mind, quote unquote, or was always thinking this is John Roberts. Maybe he'll write his memoir one day. Um, there's a good, but there's a biography of him that kind of hints at it. And that's probably the closest we'll get. Um, so he's reading the opinion on the bench. And it was actually as dramatic as it was outside. It was even more dramatic inside. I interviewed Don. One of the people I interviewed in the book is Don Verrilli. So he's the solicitor general who argued the case. And I actually interviewed also uh, one of his associates, Joe Palmore, uh, who was a, was a junior uh, lawyer in, in, in the department. And they both sort of told a very similar story of like, Sitting and listening, and the way you know they, they read, they read like a summary of the opinion. The justices. So Roberts is reading the opinion, and he's going through, and he's saying basically this commerce clause argument is wrong. Like, no, you can't do this. Sorry, federal government. This, you, if you think the mandate is constitutional because of the commerce clause, you're wrong. We disagree with that. So that's like that sounds like game set and match, and like 
really describes her like slumping in his chair, you know, everyone's ever. And then like, there's these magic words and I can't, I don't remember the exact words. I have to go back and look it up, but it was something like, you know, there's also, a, but there is also a second argument, you know, and, and immediately Virilli's ears perk up because he's re and, 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 and cause immediately Thomas starts, uh, uh, Robert starts talking about the fact that, you know, we, you know, there's another argument here and he immediately recognizes that, Oh, there's more to this. And Roberts comes out and says, Hey, guess what? It's a tax. This thing lives. And it was this amazing reversal, not just because of that moment, but because basically I would say I was in the courtroom for all three days of oral argument. Everybody thought the, the, the law was gone. I mean, just that was all the body language, all the, the conservatives were just breathing fire at the government lawyers. And so it was such a turnaround. It was so dramatic. And then there's a second case afterwards, which is not as close. And, and that was really the one where I felt like if you read the decision after it, the first decision was all messed up. Was that one of the reasons people think that Roberts changed his mind is that there's a bunch of different dissents and they refer back to each other. And uh -huh. there, it seems like there were some typos and like opinions had changed. The second opinion is very clear cut. It's relatively short for a Supreme Court opinion of this nature. And, and, I, and I think that was basically, it was a, it was a more far-fetched case and I felt like the message was pretty clear at that point. You know, Chief Justice Roberts is saying, hey, guys, I'm a Republican. I'm a conservative. I don't like this health care law, but, like, I'm not going to get rid of this thing for you. That, that's you across the street in Congress. You got to do this. This book is called The Ten-Year War because it didn't, the fight against Obamacare didn't end with this Supreme Court decisions, um, two of them. Uh, describe the efforts, and I'm throwing the kitchen sink at you here, but describe the efforts as, as, just as briefly as you can. Um, I, well, let me just say, I have gotten dozens of press releases from Republican congressmen and women who have said, I voted to repeal Obamacare 60 times, 65 times. And then the Republicans take Congress and they stop voting on this. They can't yeah. get it done. Um, describe the efforts to repeal, to replace, to defund. Um, Medicaid, the states, some of them Republican ones don't go along with this law, including where I am here in Florida. So there's like a number of things. There's a barrage going after Obamacare. And then when it comes down to actually having the chance to do it, they don't do it. They don't repeal and replace. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's basically all out war from day one. Literally the day that Obama signs a law, there's a bill filed with the clerk of the Senate. We're going to repeal this. The first of the lawsuits is filed that day. Um, and it's all out war, you know, they, 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 they take votes to repeal it. They try to find ways of defunding it. And at the state level, so much of the law is implemented at the state level. They use every lever they have to get in its way. So uh, the most effective of these is getting states not to expand Medicaid, um, which is hugely con uh, consequential. Millions of low-income people who are supposed to get insurance don't. Still today don't have it. If you live in Florida, Texas, Georgia, you know, these are, there are literally millions of people who would be eligible for free health insurance for low-income people, most of them working, and they don't because their, their governors or their legislatures won't do it. Um, but, you know, it's interesting contrast to the Democrats. You know, we were talking earlier about how the Democrats spent all this time preparing. They knew they'd get their chance to pass health care reform. So from 2010 to 2017, Republicans had, you know, basically six, seven years there to do the same thing, to, to sort of think, okay, at some point we will have control of Congress and we will be able to repeal the Affordable Care Act. So what's that gonna look like? Because their slogan was, they, even from the beginning, their slogan was repeal and replace. Because they knew that, okay, we can't just take it away and put nothing there. And the thing was like, they didn't do any of the work. I mean, you no, know, there were bills and there were like think tanks that turned out proposals and there's a small number of serious people on the right who think about this. But they didn't go through any of the efforts of like really sitting down like, well, what's this thing gonna look like? How do we get through Congress? And then they get there and, you know, Donald Trump's the president. They have full control. Of them. They say, we're going to do this day one. And it's, you know, it's the dog that caught the card. Like, okay, well, now what? And they are like, they haven't even made basic kind of concrete decisions over, you know, what the replacement is going to look like. The broadest decisions, like, is it going to have a tax deduction to help people get health care or a tax credit? Which is really important because a tax credit goes to poor people and a tax deduction doesn't. And... Are we going to do something? Are we going to change Medicaid or not? I mean, these really big fundamental decisions they hadn't worked out. And then on top of that, they decide, partly because of what they saw Obama and the Democrats go through, they're going to lightning fast, just push this through Congress as quickly as possible. Don't get bogged down in negotiations with anyone. Don't try to work with the interest groups. 
don't have committee hearings, all that stuff that like looked so ugly to watch in 2009 and 2010. But it turns out that ugly stuff had a point to it, which is that like by the time Democrats were done with that process, the entire party was invested in the success of this thing and they kind of come to an agreement on something that could pass. You know, Republicans never did any of that. And honestly, and, and, and I have like, the book has on the record quotes from conservatives saying this, most of them just didn't care about healthcare that much. Um, this was a fight they wanted to have, you know, for Donald Trump, it was all about, I want to win, I want to get Obama off the history books. And, you know, they end up with these bills that sure enough, turns out that if you take away the Affordable Care Act, you know, it's got problems, but there's like millions and millions of people are getting insurance from it. And now you're going to take it away from them and you're going to tell people with pre-existing conditions, hey, guess what? Insurance companies can go back to denying you coverage. That's really unpopular. And they had nothing, you know, no good alternative. And it just, you know, it fell apart politically. And there's this weird dynamic where the, the polls on Obamacare flip. The Democrats wind up maybe lo- even losing Congress in 2010. And those were that was a devastating election for the party. They're still picking up the pieces from that. And they may never fully pick up the pieces from losing uh, so badly in 2010. I think it was like 62 or 63 House seats that they lost. Um, and then Republicans get in and the polls flip and everyone goes, wait, this is actually a relatively popular law. And I was at one of the um, hearings that uh, one of the public uh, town halls that you cite in the book for Congressman Gus Bilirakis in Florida. Um, I was there and everyone basically is going there to this conservative Republican begging him not to vote against, uh, not to vote for repealing Obamacare. So that was this fascinating dynamic. But but now let's look at how this all changed the GOP. On the one hand, they know the law is popular, but you also can't be in the GOP if you don't say that you hate Obamacare. Yeah, I mean this this was this is the problem they got themselves into. You know, they had they had lined up behind a position where Obamacare was, you know, the worst thing ever. Capital T, capital W, capital T, capital E. And you had to be against it. And you know, that's okay. Well, that's fine, except the worst thing ever is actually like a sort of fairly moderate Republican plan. You know, Democrats endorsed it because it was your plan, or at least some of your, you know, plan for some of you. Um, and, you know, the position was untenable. The rhetoric, and, and they knew that. I think Trump actually, you know, Trump, I mean, look, I mean, Trump is not a policy guy. He never takes anything seriously. I mean, I, I, we could go on and on. Trump does have political instincts, though. And I think it was telling that Trump, as a candidate, was always saying, I believe in universal health care. Everyone's going to have great health care. And he kept saying that when he got in office. We'll have an even better replacement. For less money. For much less. Not just less money, much less money. And I saw him say that in person numerous times. Oh, yeah. You know, and, um, you know, and it wasn't like he didn't come out of that nowhere. I mean, Republicans had always said those things. But, you know, the Paul Ryans of the world are sophisticated enough to know how to presented in a slightly different couched way that, you know, that way politicians talk that's mostly not true, but you can't quite say it's a lie, you know, and, you know, there was always the little caveat and a little shading here and a little shading there. And, but, you know, Trump didn't talk like that. Trump just very blunt says, well, you know, gives the most, you know, high exaggerated volume version of whatever he's thinking at that moment. So, you know, he kept saying, it's gonna be great healthcare for everybody. And, you know, and it, that's not what they were proposing. I mean, you know, you could make a totally coherent, intellectually honest case for what Republicans wanted to do on healthcare. I, I know lots of conservatives who will make an honest argument consistent with their values and understanding of the world, why it's better, you know. And, you know, that's a, at some point it comes down to your values, what you, you know, and your judgments about policy and what works better. But, but you can't, you just can't, credibly say that their plans were going to give more people insurance for less because that just wasn't true. Talk about the biggest thumbs down in American history. Before we wrap this up with a couple of um, recap questions, talk about John McCain and why he voted no. Yeah. So, I mean, I I, I remember watching that. Count me among those who thought it was done. I did not see that coming. Um, and I, I, I still think it's one of the most, if not the most dramatic moments I've ever seen in American politics, because it was very unscripted. Um, there was this assumption, you know, that the Republicans had gone through 
all kinds of torture to get as far as they could. The House eventually, you know, the House had to, they, they had to pull a bill, then they brought it back and they passed it, went to the Senate, and McConnell, as the majority leader, keeps bringing up bills, they keep failing. He's finally, you know, found a path through where it's his, quote, skinny bill, which doesn't really do much, but that's okay, because the whole idea is that the Senate will pass something, then they'll negotiate with the House and they'll come up with a, an agreement. And, you know, the whole world assumed that McConnell wouldn't call that vote if he didn't know he had 50 yes votes. And to be fair, I know at least, you know, I heard from people who were in the Trump administration, their understanding from McCain was that he was leaning yes. They thought he was a yes vote. Um, and just remember, there's 52 Republicans at this point. So they, and they're doing it through reconciliation, so they need 50. And Susan Collins has already said no, she's not doing it. And Murkowski from Alaska has said, no, she's not doing it for their different reasons. So they can't lose anymore. McCain's going to be the 50th vote. And the thing was, I heard later, actually interviewing Joe Lieberman, of all people, who famous for killing the public option back in 2009, who's very close with McCain. And he said McCain had called him about a week before from Arizona and said, yeah, I don't know if I really like this. I'm thinking of voting now. And McCain had given a speech where he said he was very uncomfortable. It wasn't Unlike Murkowski and Collins, who I think we're really more concerned with the effects of repeal. They're like, I got constituents, they're going to lose their insurance. For McCain, you know, and he's pretty conservative in his beliefs in terms of policy, but he's, he was a sort of old school institutionalist. Like he thought Congress should operate a certain way. And I think it really bugged him, the fact that Republicans were ramming this through with no committee hearings. And he said that. And I don't think anyone took him seriously, but I think he just became convinced this was the wrong way to legislate. And I quoted a Republican aide who remembered watching, there was a press conference a few hours before that he appeared at. And I remember he, and this aide was saying, I'm watching McCain and he's just got this quizzical look on his face like, this thing is so dumb. I have to kill this because like, otherwise we're going to just do something really stupid. And I just think he, he got fed up. I mean, I don't think it helped that like, you know, the man trying to convince him to vote yes is Donald Trump. Right. right. And he, also he had brain cancer too. He did. And, you know, we'll never know. I mean, he wrote about it in his memoir a little bit. McCain did. But, you know, I, I do think, I have to think, I'm speculating, I have to think that, you know, knowing that your time on earth is, is, is coming to a close, it, it puts things in perspective and you think a lot, probably more. What do you want to be remembered for? How is Obamacare now? What problems does Obamacare have? I've done interviews with people who... Um, pay way too much money for not enough health care. Their deductibles are high. Their premiums are high. Um, where does it go from here? How do you see President Biden handling this over the next four years? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, Obamacare was an attempt to get the universal coverage, and it took a really big step towards it. I think it put in place, like, the key principles that now have wide acceptance. But we still have millions and millions of Americans who don't have health insurance, we have a whole second category of millions and millions of Americans who have insurance, but they either they have the deductibles you're talking about or the premiums are super high and they can't afford their medical care either. Um, so we have a long way to go. Um, Biden has already started to try to fix that. Um, there's some small things they can do through regulations and they're already, that's underway. It takes a while to pass a, you know, get a regulation written. They're, they're working on that. Um, you know, the COVID relief bill, has a really big boost that sort of for people who are buying coverage on their own, you know, through healthcare.gov, um, or if you live in one of the states that runs an exchange like California or New York or Kentucky, um, uh, there's gonna be a big boost in the amount of financial assistance you get. Um, really, the, uh, something that Obama and the Democrats always wanted to do after the law passed, because they knew it was underfunded. They knew that to get the thing through Congress, they'd have to cut back, and it's like, okay, it's, you end up with a lot of people like the ones you're hearing from who have these high deductibles. And the way you fix that is you say, all right, instead of getting a $2,000 tax credit to offset your healthcare costs, you should get a $4,000 tax credit. So the COVID bill does that. The, the, the asterisk is it's only for two years. So they're going to have to try to make it permanent if they want that to stick. Um, and they will try to do that. And if they succeed at that, then I think the next step is, and this is really important, they want to be able to say, for people who, right now, to buy one of those plans on like exchanges on healthcare.gov, you have to be like an independent, you know, small business owner or you have a part-time job. If you work for a big company that offers you insurance, you can't 
can't get the discounted insurance. They want to um, make it so that anybody could get an insurance policy through the exchanges. And that would help a lot of lower income workers who, yeah, I work for a company, my company offers benefits, but they're too expensive, I can't afford them. And then from there, then you get into the really kind of more heavy lifts politically, which get into things that like move you towards a Medicare for all, you know, something that looks more like Medicare for all. So like, are you going to have the government start to regulate prices and things like that? Are you going to have a public option? And those are kind of the next steps beyond. When will, this is, I'm asking you to, to, be a, to, to tell the future here and to asking you the million or if not the billion dollar question, when will there be universal coverage in the United States and is America still capable of coming to a deal on something like that, something so big and so transformative. Yeah. Um, so number one, I try not to make predictions because I'm wrong. More than <laughs> what if I ask uh, you to? <laughs> but uh, so I think, if I had to bet, I think we will, can I use a mathematical term? You can use uh, any term you want as long as you tell me we're going to be as long as you give me a firm answer. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you no, think? I think we will. I think we will approach universal coverage asymptotically. Okay, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I, I don't I'm know hoping I got that right. My wife's a professor, like engineering professor. My son is studying math in college, so they're going to make fun of me if I got this wrong. But uh, uh, what's the word? What's the word? Asymptotically, like an asymptote. So, like you, you, you approach something gradually, and as you get closer, like you, you slow down. So, like okay. you will get to very close to universal coverage, like maybe not in the foreseeable future, get there, but we'll keep getting closer and closer and closer. Um, uh, I think that's probably the way it happens in America because to just do it in a big bang, you know, one big jump is just, we don't, I don't, that would, I don't think it's impossible, but that requires some fairly significant changes in the way our government, the way Congress works. I'm um, just, you know, you really have to kind of change the way the Senate works and money and politics and all the things that stood in the way of the Affordable Care Act, you know, the hardest part of it is like, you're talking about rearranging the way the drug industry gets paid, the way the hospitals get paid, and that's just so hard to do. I, I don't want to say it's impossible, and, 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 I, and I certainly hope people who, who are advocating for that will continue to advocate for that, because A, I think it's by advocating the ideal you get that, you know, I do think, I'm one of those people who believes like, you, you should say what your final goal is and push for that, and if you have to compromise at the end, then compromise, but you know, keep your, your, your lofty goals. But also, I mean, look, I didn't think they would be able to pass a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. I've been pleasantly surprised at how effective that is. So maybe we're entering a new, you know, maybe the, maybe the political equations have changed a little bit. Maybe the constraints, maybe they can do more than seemed possible in the last 10 years. So, I, you know, far be it for me to like, you know, undersell uh, the potential. All right, now, so I've asked you a billion dollar question. Let's ask a second billion dollar question. Um, how would politics be different today if Barack Obama had gone on to something else when he realized the pushback his law was getting was going to be so significant? Yeah. Um, so this is an interesting question because there was a lot of second guessing afterwards, right? In fact, I remember one of the things, this isn't in the book, but I remember it was someone who worked on healthcare in the Obama White House and told me afterwards, you know, they'd also tried to do climate change in 2009. And it, it, it they, a bill got to the House and it, it, it got in the Senate. And this person described how like, and then of course the midterms, they lose. And so that's it, they can't legislate. N nothing big is gonna pass. And this person described to me the fact that like whenever they saw people from the climate team at the White House, they'd like put their head down and feel a little embarrassed because they knew the climate people were like, oh, we used all our you know political capital on that healthcare plan and now we can't do climate. I don't actually think it would have made a difference. Um, I think uh, at the end of the day, Healthcare went forward because the Democratic Party wanted it to go forward because it was ready to go forward. It was mature as an issue in a way that, say, climate was not. Um, you know, if I was going to rewrite the history of 2009 in a way to get more a better political outcome, I, I'd focus on the stimulus. Like, I think that's where the error is, you know, a bigger stimulus. And also, I, I do think, and I'm not, this is not my lane in terms of my expertise, so I will defer to others if they have good arguments for why, but I do feel like getting tougher with Wall Street, both substantively and rhetorically, which is thing Obama never wanted to do as much as he did, uh, would have helped. I think uh, those bankers got off pretty easy. And I think there was, there's, there's I, you know, I'm not a believer in vengeance, but I am a believer in accountability. 
Um, and I think, you know, if you want to rerun 2009 to get a different outcome, probably more there than on healthcare. But I, even there, to be honest with you, I mean, I, this is thing I really have decided is like, I've been thinking about it a lot in the context of how well Biden is doing, which is remarkable. And I think they've done a great job so far and they've learned a lot. Jonathan Cohn, author of The 10-Year War, Obamacare and the Unfinished Crusade for Universal Coverage. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. Certainly check out that book and also his writing at Huffington Post. He's also on Twitter at Citizen Cohn. I do want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axelbank Reports History and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Be sure to check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. See you next time. Thanks. Thanks.